and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing all right. Do you know what today is? The Juno Awards are going on right now. Oh. Actually, by this time they might have wrapped up. It's 11 p.m. in Toronto, so. For everyone on our audience who is not Canadian, why don't you explain what the Juno Awards are? They are the Canadian Grammys. What I find funny is that the Juno Awards are tonight, um, but another correct answer to what's going on today is uh, the Tonys. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I um, haven't watched the Junos in a really long time, but I remember when I was a kid, CBC used to make like a big deal about them. They still do. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we would watch them sometimes or rather like mom would put them on TV sometimes. And like to give you an idea of like how long ago it was that like the last time I saw the Junos, um, the last time I saw them was definitely in an era where like uh, Anne Murray was still like just the be all end all of like the Canadian like music scene in terms of winning awards or um, the other one who was really big was not Reba McIntyre. That's not the right person. No, I'm pretty sure Reba McIntyre is American. Very American. Was her name Reba McLean? I don't know. There was this like larger redheaded woman who like sang like ballads. <laughs> and I, ooh, Reba McIntyre not... is not large. No, I know. Either, I know. So... I know. It's just the name is like a familiar, sure. a similar cadence. Okay. It's definitely not Anne Murray. She doesn't look like that at all. But and anyway. Anne Murray is also still the winner of the most Juno awards ever. Yeah. As of 2022. Yeah, it's definitely strange the way that like the Canadian entertainment scene will pick like certain people as like you are the representative of canadian creativity in this field you shall get all the awards all the time other people who may be more famous or more talented we're not going to acknowledge you're the one it's more about how they have broken into american entertainment uh for example michael buble i feel like once you have like become an american like major star Canada stops awarding you things because it's like you betrayed us. No, it's just a passing of the torch. Well, okay. It's just, it feels like, you know, the weekend's not over here, like cleaning up at the Junos. You know what I mean? Fair. Anyways. There's also... (laughs) We're far afield. Yes. I, yes. I was about to go into um, the racism of the music industry, but... Yeah. Listen, this is a movie podcast. (laughs) What are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we're watching The Trollenberg Terror, a.k.a. The Crawling Eye, from 1958, directed by Quentin Lawrence. Eye stuff is gross. Sure, that's probably why it's in a lot of horror movies. So, this film's back in the UK, and um, like a lot of our like UK sci-fi horror films, this is an adaptation of a TV serial. Mm-hmm. I have never heard of nor know nothing about this TV serial. So can you enlighten me to any degree, Sarah? Absolutely. So if Creatures of the Night 
recall back in episode 182 when we talked about the Quatermass experiment, um, we talked about the BBC and ITV. BBC is the British Broadcast Corporation. It's publicly funded, and um, before 1955, it was the only television channel. Then in 1955, ITV, independent television, was established to provide a competition to BBC, and it's a commercial station. Now, with this competition, uh, we see this boom in original programming between these channels, particularly in science fiction, but with adaptations of like novels or pulp novels, basically anything, because they, they are trying to outcompete with each other. Now, within ITV, they had individual broadcasters. Yeah, it was like a Voltron of several different small companies because no one really had the infrastructure to like take on the BBC all by themselves. Exactly. So they joined together, they unionized, and together with solidarity. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's probably incorrect to refer to the more um, Absolutely corporate incorrect. station as unionized. Um, but the broadcaster in question here is Associated TV, also known as ATV, which is within ITV. Mm -hmm. um, ATV would provide television broadcasting during the weekdays to the Midlands, so like central England. And during the weekend, it would provide television programming only to London. <laughs> uh, and this was happening between 1955 to 1968 when they finally had the infrastructure to do more. Now, the reason I bring up ATV is the Trollenberg Terror was produced as part of their Saturday serial program. Um, it's a horror sci-fi miniseries with six episodes, um, and it's definitely uh, something where you can see the relationship all the way back to Quatermass experiment uh, with the BBC, but also, you know, the rise of sci-fi horror as a genre. Mm -hmm. Now, this story comes from writer Peter Key. Do you know anything about Peter Key? I know that he's not one person. Yes, he does not exist. He is uh, a combined pseudonym for a writing team. Uh, this team in particular had Jack Cross, George F. Kerr, and Giles Cooper. Or Giles, I, I don't it's know. It's probably Giles. That's what I thought. Now, this was a constantly changing team, but Giles Cooper tended to be like the mainstay through it and with different people coming on. Was it kind of the thing that every Saturday movie serial was um, Peter Key then? Nope. Was that the idea? Okay. I just know that like when there's a author pseudonym that's actually like a rotating cast of authors, it's sometimes because like... A publisher wants you to think that every book in the same series is by the same author when there's no way an author could like churn out books that fast and things like that. Yeah. No, that's not the case here. Hmm. Now, regarding Jack Cross, uh, there's no information about him. And unfortunately, his name is generic enough that searching for him is incredibly difficult. <laughs> uh, so God damn it, Jack Cross. How could you not foresee the rise of an SEO based universe of information uh, distribution? <laughs> So no notes on Jack Cross. However, George Kerr, uh, the second member of this writing team, he was born in 1918. Um, after getting through World War II as a POW, he turned to writing, publishing his novel, Business in Great Waters, in 1952. 
Um, after the publication of his novel, he turned almost exclusively to plays for TV and radio, working as both a writer and a script editor, depending on what he was needed for. And this is based in the UK, though he would later move to Australia in 1957 and do radio and TV down there. By the early 60s, he moved back to the UK and was sourced to submit several Doctor Who episodes for season four. This would still be with the first Doctor, played by William Hartnell. Yes. Um, (laughs) Sorry. We've been watching a lot of a TV show called Um Actually, where, you know, you're supposed to interrupt and say, um, actually, here's what's wrong with your statement, and it's all based on geek knowledge, and this is evidenced by Ben accidentally interrupting me. Yes, that's <laughs> entirely exactly where this behavior is coming from, because it is definitely a behavior that I've tried, like, really hard to suppress over, like, the last decade of knowing you, because interrupting <laughs> you is super rude. Um, and it is entirely because we've been watching this show that like, I'm now instinctively back in like the, like, let me interrupt you to prove my geek knowledge mode. Well, it's kind of like when you watch Jeopardy and you just like, without realizing it, are yelling the answer at the television. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if you were having a conversation, you'd be yelling <laughs> William Hartnell at yeah. someone's face. <laughs> uh, who is William Hartnell? Well... Um, actually, we are not playing Jeopardy, Ben. Right. Um, back to George Kerr. Ultimately, his stories were not selected. Oh. (laughs) So no collaboration on Doctor Who for him. And he would die at age 78 in 1996. Okay. So, you know, kind of a worker. Nothing like hugely done. But, you know, he's done quite a lot. Got it. So, like, this is an experienced team of TV writers. Well, yes, but the star of the team, the MVP, Mm -hmm. is Giles Cooper. He actually has that OBE, Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Mm -hmm. award standing? It's it's an honor. Okay. Um, I'm sure it is, but what is it called? (laughs) Um, And he was awarded this honor uh, for his broadcast work. Yeah, an OBE is like one step below a knighthood. Sure. I think you have to get an OBE first. I could be wrong. Um, Definitely, I'm actually me, British listeners. (laughs) So Cooper was born in 1918 in Dublin. Now, education was a priority of his Royal Navy commander father, so he would send Giles to London, France, and Spain for schooling. Now, his father wanted Giles to be a diplomat. I see. And Giles turned out to be a bit of a disappointment when he chose acting instead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would have to imagine. <laughs> now, Giles's acting career was interrupted with World War II. Um, he enlisted, became an officer, um, and was sent to Burma uh, to fight with Japanese forces. When he returned to the UK, he would return to acting until 1952, when he would try his hand at writing as well. This writing career began with radio adaptations of things like Oliver Twist and Lord of the Flies. And while science fiction was like hugely popular in radio and in TV, uh, Cooper would write across genres with particular emphasis on drama with uh, gallows humor sprinkled throughout. In 1953, he was hired as a BBC staff writer. And then in 1955, he moved over to ITV. His first big 
break, I guess, like sign of like, oh, he's earned public attention was in his 1956 radio play, Matthew Beacon. Um, he followed that up with the following year with an adaptation of uh, John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. Okay. In yeah. which case, Wyndham actually sent Cooper a letter saying like, hey, good job. Nice. Mm-hmm. It was in 1960 that he was awarded the honor of the OBE, and his last play would be 1966's Happy Family. Cooper would pass away after falling from a train. Oh. He was 48. That sucks. Mm-hmm. A lot of people see Giles Cooper as, like, a huge figure in, in British radio and also television history. Okay. Um, a major dram- dramatist, especially because he was also a playwright. Um, so in 1978, the... BBC and publishing house Air Methuen put together the Giles Cooper Awards for Radio Drama. And one of his most famous original works is probably 1964's The Other Man, which started out as a radio play, but then was decided to adapt it to the stage. It's about an alternative history where Nazi Germany wins. Sure. Um, and it stars Michael Caine. Okay. Does he play Hitler? No, he plays the other man. Oh. He plays the lead. Okay. Now, together, Giles Cooper, George Kerr, and Jack Cross formed Peter Key, mm-hmm. and they came up with the story for the Trollenberg Terror, which would be produced as a 1956 miniseries. To direct this miniseries, ITV turned to their contract director, Quentin Lawrence. Um, He was born in 1920 in Gravesend, Kent, which is like a dope town name. (laughs) Gravesend, yes. Uh, Lawrence originally trained to be a physicist. Oh my God, wow. World War II saw him researching how to improve radar, and he even participated in early parts of the Manhattan Project as he held patents in nuclear reactor rod technology. Yikes. (laughs) So after the war, Lawrence decided that I've had enough of physics and science. Got it. He was like, I have become death destroyer of worlds. And instead of having an existential crisis, he was like, I'm going to be a TV director. (laughs) So leveraging his work in television imaging and radio transmission, um, he managed to get his foot in the door at ITV when it was started in 1955. I love that idea. It's like you want to be an author and you have like a background in like paper manufacturing or something. So you like barge into like Random House or whatever. And you're like, I know the science behind how ink like sticks to paper. You should let me write a book. And like Random House (laughs) being like, yeah, that that tracks. Okay, so part of it is most likely because ITV is just starting out yes. and they're trying to establish networks. And dude's like, I know how to do that. By the way, could I maybe direct? And then being like, yeah, sure. We don't have anyone to do anything. Exactly. Yeah. You want to get in the door at an industry? Find like a startup, basically. <laughs> So his directorial debut came in 1955, the same year ITV was created, with an adaptation of The Importance of Being Earnest. Sure. Um, He had a few one-off episodes, and then he would direct and produce The Strange World of Planet X in 1956. Yeah. 
Yeah. Are, are you familiar with the strange world of Planet X? Yes, I will have more to say about it as we go on. Oh, fantastic. It's sort of like a like joined-at-the-hip sibling with the Trollenberg Terror. Sure, I can see that. Um, because his next project was uh, to produce and direct the Trollenberg Terror later that year. Um, now, the Trollenberg Terror was broadcast between 1956 and 57. It kind of was like November, December, January. But Lawrence just consistently did satisfactory work. Um, there's even a 1970 review of his work from The Guardian that said that uh, that praised his precision of camera work. So, you know, he's not just like some dude coming in. He has skill. Sure. He would ultimately produce around 16 works and direct many more through to 1979, including 1969's Riptide, uh, Albert and Victoria from 1970 to 71, Emmerdale Farm in 1973, several Coronation Street episodes between 1974 and 1977, and what is apparently known as one of his best pieces of work um, the show Ghosts of Motley Hall from 1976 to 78. And he would pass away in 1979 at age 58. So, the Trollenberg Terror. What's it about? What is it? <laughs> what do they know? Do they, they know, know things? things? Let's find out. Uh, it was a six-episode miniseries, and it opens with the traveling psychic act of Sarah and Anne pilgrim they are traveling and they are near a swiss village when sarah has a terrible vision of death they decide to stop there the town's name is trollenberg and they discover that yes horrible deaths of climbers are happening in and around this town and the nearby mountain of the same name now this is definitely sci-fi horror with gruesome deaths and mystery but by the end of episode two and into episode three uh, we learned that these deaths are being caused by aliens, mm. specifically the exodes. They are causing deaths, and they plan to come down the mountain to where it's warmer. Sure. Um, now, helping stop the exodes from doing so are our psychic siblings, um, a government representative uh, named George Brett and a reporter named George Truscott. Uh, they also have some other intrepid heroes like Professor Crevette at the nearby observatory. And together they devise and execute a plan to stop the exodes. So they want to stop the exodes from moving from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain. As well as just stop them in general because they are still killing people. So you could say that they're trying to stop the aliens' exodus? No, exodes. <laughs> Um, actually, you're, I'm trying to make a joke here, Sarah. Jokes aren't allowed on this podcast. Mm. So Sarah and Anne Pilgrim were played by actresses Sarah Lawson and Rosemary Miller, respectively. The former, um, Sarah Lawson, had a career of basically guest roles throughout BBC and ITV, while Rosemary Miller didn't have much of a career at all. But she was from New Zealand, so that's her fun fact. <laughs> George Brett was played by Glyn Owen, who is basically like the male lead here. And he would have his biggest and most recognizable roles after this with a show called Emergency Ward 10, which ran from 1957 to 61. 
1972 BBC show The Brothers and a show called Howard's Way from 1985 to 1990. Astronomer Professor Cravette is played by Raph de la Tour, an actor in the BBC Repertory Company, so he is in many, many things and would be one of those guys. Right. And the last person I'll mention here is actor Lawrence Payne, who played reporter Philip Truscott and actually reprises his role in the film adaptation. So Lawrence Payne was born in 1919, and he was the middle child um, of a single-parent home, as his father died when Payne was three. He studied hard and got a clerical job at 16, but it didn't hold joy for him, so he decided to pursue acting instead. I really want to meet the person for whom a clerical job holds joy. There are people out there who like to be able to just like file things away, do the clerical work, and then go home and not have to think about what their job is. Sure. You know, there is joy in that for mm. sure. So to pursue acting, Payne turned to the Bristol Old Vic Theater School. And doing so actually enabled him to avoid service during World War II. He was a conscientious objector, and he used the excuse that he was touring with the school in order to be exempted. That seems like that shouldn't get you off, but okay. It worked. Mm -hmm. In the early 1940s, he transitioned from theater to radio, but would often bounce in between. He had his film debut in 1949's Train of Events, and the Trollenberg Terror would be his fifth film, and he would as you often see with British actors, go between TV, film, radio, the stage, etc. throughout his career. He's been on Doctor Who three times. <laughs> First in 1966, then in 1980, and then again in 1985. So that's like first Doctor, fourth Doctor, sixth Doctor? I wouldn't be able to tell you. British listeners, please buzz in to tell me uh if i've got that right because that was just a that's a off the dome yeah now lawrence payne's most famous role came in itv's show sexton blake where he played the title character from 1968 to 71 now during sexton blake he would actually lose sight in his left eye um during a sword fight rehearsal Basically, he got, like, knocked on the head a little too hard. They took him to the hospital, and his doctor was like, okay, we've done what we can, but rest. Yeah, his retina detached, and they were like, if you stay in bed and lie perfectly still for, like, a week, the retina will just reattach on its own. And Lawrence Payne was like, nuts to that, went back to work, uh, got hit during a fistfight scene, and lost sight in his left eye. You knew the risks. Don't sacrifice yourself for your job. Come <laughs> on, dude. Payne's lost eyesight didn't impact the range of hobbies that he had, um, which included painting, um, both oil and watercolor. Um, he was a crime noir novelist uh, and a self-taught pianist. Yes. Payne would even work as a fight director which I think is hilarious given how he lost yeah, his eyesight. Yeah, it's like, it's like you know, the other actor's like, Oi, Mr. Payne, um, is this fight choreography entirely safe? And like Larry's looking at him and being like, Hey, 
you don't get an eye patch like this from safe fight choreography. It's like, hmm. Keep in mind, he's from Kent. Uh, yeah, so. that's not the accent at all. <laughs> that's not the Kentish accent is like very close to just like classic received pronunciation. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm just the second a British person has like an eye patch in my mind. It's like they're like a tough guy. <laughs> and that's where they like, you know, get this like London like docks accent. OK, well, what does Nicholas Ray sound like? Well, see, I know what Nicholas Ray sounds like because I've seen interviews with Nicholas Ray. In the 1990s, Payne contracted septicema, which uh, for anyone who doesn't know is like blood poisoning by infection. Yes. In, in your colon. Yeah. Things go horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and this would cause significant brain damage. So he had to basically retire from doing a lot of things that he enjoyed and he ultimately passed away in 2009. So he seems like he was a really cool dude, but uh, the Trollenberg Terror is pretty early in his career. Got it. So um, that sort of brings us to the Trollenberg Terror becoming a movie, Mm -hmm. um, which I guess I'm going to preface with saying, okay, so this is from Tempian Films, uh, which is the production company of producers Robert S. Baker and Monty Norman. And they did uh, the hammer knockoff Blood of the Vampire with Jimmy Sangster. Now, before adapting this into a film, they had, in fact, already adapted The Strange World of Planet X into a film. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, just worth saying that that came out earlier in 1958, I think in like May or July. Um, The Strange World of Planet X is a movie about aliens who invade and they use, you know, alien science to like transform insects into like giant insects. (laughs) And then those insects like destroy cities. So it's an alien invasion giant monster movie, which is why we skipped it. Having done that, I guess doing the Trollenberg Terror next was kind of like the natural progression. I do think it's interesting that like Hammer was making its name doing film adaptations of these like BBC sci-fi horror miniseries. And then Tempion Films is coming in here trying to make a name doing adaptations of like ITV sci-fi horror miniseries. It's like it's like two groups of competitors right absolutely yeah and there's definitely that like the bbc has class itv is like the upstarter yeah like no one like no one wants to admit that they watch it itv itv is commercial which like was a dirty word in britain in the 50s yeah what's interesting though is despite this like rivalry uh tempion films once again engaged Hammer Films' main writer, Jimmy Sangster, to write the script for this. So instead of getting any of the Peter Key guys, they were like, you know what? Jimmy Sangster's in the office. He just finished doing Blood of the Vampire. Um, I'm sure that we can probably get him to write this in a couple hours before they start asking where he is back at the Hammer backlot. Well, it's it's an adaptation of like... Sure, like six episode miniseries into a film rather than an original piece of work, right? Yeah. So it's theoretically less work. Adapting stuff is hard. Yeah, Let me absolutely, tell you. absolutely. Anyways, Sangster comes in to write, um, but then they do get Quentin Lawrence 
to come back and be the director of the adaptation, which I think is really interesting because um, Hammer never did that. Um, now, I suspect maybe this is because Quentin Lawrence was inexpensive because he was just like a TV director who'd only been working for three years. Um, but, you know, it's still interesting to get the chance to like remake something you've already done on like a much larger scale. So possibly the biggest change from the television series to the movie was the addition of an American character, Alan Brooks, who is played by Forrest Tucker. Now, we've talked about in the past the way that this was like what Hammer would do. They would insert an American actor, um, not usually like a new character. It was just like Quatermass became American in the Hammer versions and stuff like that. And it was this idea that like having an American actor gave you a better shot at getting played in American theaters. We've actually seen Forrest Tucker in the role of the token American before he was in the abominable snowman. He's the like, I'm rah, rah, rah kind of guy um, yeah. contrasted with Peter Cushing. By this point, of course, hammer was beyond needing Doing to that. do that. Yeah. They were like able to just have their pure British casts by now. Cause they were such a success. Forrest Tucker also starred as the token American new character in Tempion Films version of The Strange World of Planet X. Okay. Did Quentin Lawrence direct Planet X? No, that film was directed by Gilbert Gunn. And in fact, I misspoke. Um, Strange World of Planet X was not produced by Tempion Films. It was the same distributor as Trollenberg Terror, Eros Films, and I'll talk about them in a bit. Um, but in fact, it was totally like independently produced. The more you know. Exactly. Um, now, Tucker had been a Hollywood actor originally, uh, whose career had started at United Artists and then fell to Columbia and then fell to RKO and then moved over to England, um, largely because he had a drinking problem that hampered his career. He was a um, sight reader, basically like you would hand him the script, he would read his lines go do the scene in one take, and that was it. Like, he didn't fuck up his lines. He could just go in and do it. But his alcoholism, you know, while it didn't affect his performances or his memory, it affected, like, other things, like, you know, arriving to set on time and, and behavior and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. He um, got kind of, like, lambasted for his performance in Abominable Snowman because he was, like, an addition to the cast because that movie was also based on a BBC miniseries. Um, but as I recall, we actually quite enjoyed him in that movie. Yeah, it was a really good dynamic performance opposite Cushing. Like it even enhanced Cushing's performance. Mm -hmm. After these last few British films in 1958, he actually returned to America and his career had a resurgence when he demonstrated a flair for light comedy in projects like Anti-Mame, The Music Man, and F Troop. And he would pass away in 1986 of lung cancer. One of the two female leads in this film is actress Janet Monroe, who was born in England in 1934. She was the daughter of a touring comedian, and her dad wanted her to like grow up and join his act, but she wanted to grow up and be a serious actress. <laughs> um, and so, from a very young Screw age, you, Dad, I'm going into drama. Right, exactly. Um, so from a very young age, she started doing like stage work, um, stage performances, and she began appearing in films in 1957. Uh, the Trollenberg Terror was one of her very first feature film roles. Her big break came with the 1959 Disney comedy Darby O'Gill and the Little People. 
Okay. I've never heard of this. It was very popular at the time. Um, okay. I don't think it's like gotten a lot of like re-release attention. Um, Sean Connery's in it in a minor role um, <laughs> back before he was famous. But yeah, it was very popular. Um, other major films for her include Disney's Swiss Family Robinson in 1960 and the Val Guest directed post-apocalyptic The Day the Earth Caught Fire in 1961. In 1963, she married chronic alcoholic actor Ian Hendry and developed alcoholism herself, trying to like keep up with him. Due to this, her career kind of flatlined. And though she divorced Hendry in 1971, she would pass away of heart disease in 1972 at age 38. 38? Yeah. Oh my God. The film also features Andrew Falls, uh, who had been the chief guard in blood of the vampire and we talked about him in that episode he would go on to serve as an mp for labor in parliament from 1966 to 1997 the film was shot with relatively the same crew as blood of the vampire at southall studios and it actually became the last film to shoot at that studio which had been in operation since 1924 why is that I don't really know. I think it was like sold off and torn down kind of thing. Okay. The Trollenberg Terror was released on October 7th, 1958 in the UK by Eros Films. Um, Eros was a distributor that we've talked about in the past. Kind of a, you know, hammer competitor. One of the like larger middle range British distributors of this time. Mm-hmm. In the United States, the film was picked up by Distributors Corporation of America uh, they cut it down from 84 minutes to 75 minutes in order to get to the monsters faster, and they retitled it The Crawling Eye. Then they put it on a double feature with The Strange World of Planet X, uh, which they retitled Cosmic Monsters. It was one of the final releases for DCA, which folded in 1959. <laughs> so this double feature of The Crawling Eye and Cosmic Monsters was kind of lambasted by critics at the time, uh, including the New York Times, which stated that the double feature did nothing to advance the genre of science fiction. Oh, that's harsh. Uh, however, The Crawling Eye would go on to inspire John Carpenter's film The Fog, uh, as well as a scene in Stephen King's novel It, and it has the distinction of being featured as the first episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000, after it moved from being a local broadcast TV show in Minneapolis to a national cable show on Comedy Channel. Oh, dang. Yeah. So how are we watching this? Well, you can rent The Trollenberg Terror on iTunes. Um, I believe you can watch The Crawling Eye on Amazon Prime. It was released on DVD in both versions in 2003, but that DVD is now super out of print. Right, so hopefully you can find a copy somewhere, somehow. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the Trollenberg Terror, a.k.a. The Crawling Eye, from 1958, directed by Quentin Lawrence. See you on the other side, everybody. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Cholenberg Terror from 1958, uh, also known as The Crawling Eye, directed by Quentin Lawrence. Uh, ben, first thoughts? I wish that I wasn't going to say this, but this movie sucks. Okay, I think um, yes, but also there are some neat things going on here. Yeah, it's it's really disappointing because this movie doesn't have to suck. There 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 is good stuff here. Yeah, uh, it's just a little little boring sometimes. Yeah, this movie. I blame the director, the editor, the score, really and the, script. the score. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought the score was pretty neat, but um, you know, we'll we'll talk about it. Sure. Let's talk about the story. Sure. So, uh, from what I can tell, broad strokes, pretty close to the TV series. We are passing by the Swiss mountain Trollenberg, where, um, as the film opens, we see three students climbing, and one of them is kind of up ahead, and you hear that he thinks he sees something in the, in the mist, and then suddenly he's, like, attacked and he falls. Luckily, he's tied on a line so the two others try to pull him up um and then they see that their friend uh is missing his head it's been ripped clean off cut to <laughs> on a train the sisters sarah and Anne pilgrim are traveling they are here for a holiday and on their way to geneva um and in their train car is also alan brooks who we learn is uh someone who works at the u.n um, but he's also here on holiday. Now, Brooks is headed to Trollenberg because um, a friend of his, Professor Crevette at the observatory, has kind of called him in because uh, there's like something you need to see. As they are on the train, Anne, who is clearly like telepathic or psychic in some sort of way, clairvoyant or something, um, goes into a trance and seems to see that attack on the student clearly something's going on in the mountain she's like no sister we got to get off at Schallenberg. we have to go here so we follow brooks heading on up to the observatory he has to take a cable car um like halfway up the mountain to the observatory and then people usually hike from there up um so he goes up to the observatory and his friend professor Crevet explains that i'm finding the same thing that we found in the andes mysterious which is promptly solved with uh him explaining that there is a radioactive cloud that is also static it's not moving from this one spot on Trollenberg mountain um now the cloud does seem to move by choice whenever there's an attack and it always seems to move to where the attack is two hikers Two climbers accompanied Brooks up on the cable car, and they are headed up the mountain. Um, their names aren't important, but one of them is named Brett, and the other one is a geologist, and they're basically hoping to find out, like, what's causing these deaths. I think his name was Drewhurst. Drewhurst? Yeah, the geologist. Drewhurst, the geologist. I see. So they are hiking up, and um, before you get to like too far up, there's this hut that people usually stop at to like camp out at, and then start first thing in the morning. So they make it there, and um, we see as night falls that the cloud moves into 
around the hut, um, somehow Brett becomes like telepathically controlled or convinced to leave the hut in the middle of the night. And then Drew Hurst is attacked by something unseen. Back in the village, uh, Anne has been, you know, showing off her skills and, you know, the act that she has with Sarah of like, Sarah holds up an item and can't see it. And she says, it's a paperweight. And that's their act. Um, but as they are doing this, Anne falls into a trance and describes the attack on Brett and Jewhurst. Now, Brooks and everyone quickly calls up the hut and managed to get Jewhurst on the line uh, just as he is attacked and killed. So next morning, they have a search party out to the hut. They discover Jewhurst dead with his head ripped off and then continue the search party to try to find Brett. During that search, uh, two rescuers do find him, but Brett isn't in his right mind. He's carrying Jewhurst's head in his pack and also kills the two rescuers um night falls and there's still like clearly no sign of brett and hey isn't it weird that two rescuers also have disappeared when suddenly brett comes in through the hotel doors he, he has some bad coordination it's not like he's drunk but he he just can't you know when you're trying on glasses for the first time or like a new prescription and everything seems a little wibbly wobbly that's kind of how it is only exacerbated he also complains that it's like too warm in here and then as soon as he sees Anne, he pulls a knife and tries to kill her. In the scuffle to stop this attack, um, he uh, Brett hits his head on a table and he doesn't bleed. Um, so by this point, Brooks, and I believe Crevette is down here as well, they share uh, to um, Philip, uh, who has been like a little shifty character at this point, what exactly is going on. Because they're like, okay, we, we clearly have to explain at least what's happened with Brett. So they relay to Philip what happened in the Andes. Now, if you're not familiar, the Andes are tall sets of mountains. Um, I forget where located. South America. South America. Thank you, Ben. And same kind of reports of strange attacks happening up in high altitudes and a cloud not moving. Um, but there was a woman in the nearby village who seemed to be clairvoyant and she would often have like... Uh, these same kind of like telepathic trances that Anne is having. Now, Crevette and Brooks happened to be there because they were like testing this woman's telepathic abilities or something. Long story short, one of the uh, climbers around the Andes went missing, came back 24 hours later, completely butchered the clairvoyant woman. Um, and when they found the man, it, he had been like dead for those 24 hours that he had been missing. So he was not alive when he came back to kill that woman. And so since this is what's happening again, they're like, okay, so whatever is causing the cloud is the same thing that happened in the Andes, as well as clearly there's something about Anne or people with clairvoyancy that is a threat to whatever is in this cloud. And it's at this point that Philip, um, who, like I said, has been shifty up to this point, explains, no, I'm actually just a reporter. <laughs> Um, and I was following the Andy story, and that's why I'm here. Now, because they have foiled the Cloud's attempt to kill Anne by remote-controlling Brett, 
They basically try again. They locked Brett down in the basement. He manages to escape. He kills the mayor on his way out. And uh, in an attempt to kill Anne, he gets shot, which shouldn't really work because he's already dead. But we're not really following zombie rules here. Maybe he shot him in the spine and paralyzed him. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how any of this works. Yeah. Neither do the writers. Hmm. Um, so yet again, the clouds plan is foiled. So what will it do next? Well, it will descend down the mountain uh, to completely cover the village. Um, it's at this point that they realize that there are actually multiple clouds, um, at least four and uh, as the clouds are descending down into the village, Brooks, Crevette, and Philip, and everyone uh, manage to round up the villagers and try to get them up the cable car to the observatory, because that's supposed to be like a stronghold. Now, of course, while they are escaping the village, um, a child goes back for his toy. I think it's a girl. Goes back for her toy. And um, this is when we get to see whatever is in the cloud. Uh, there's something banging at the door of the hotel. Once it opens, all you see is this big round mound with an eye in the middle. Like just a hill of flesh with an eye the size of a coffee table in the middle. Yeah, it's like got little stringy tentacles that yes. it seems to like crawl around on. Kind of like Krang. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if there was, like, no mouth and only just, like, the one central eye. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it uses its tentacles to, like, grab things. And so it tries to grab the girl, but Brooks saves her. They manage to get out. Um, The other thing that's important to note here is that whatever is inside the cloud, whether it be this being or parts of buildings, whatever, it gets extremely cold to the point where cables break. So we have a moment of tension as uh, the last cable car is going up and it looks like the cables are going to break from the extreme cold. Of course, they make it to the top, though, and into the observatory. We get another attempt on Anne's life that leaves her unconscious and unable to help in any sort of way. Not that we understood how she could help in any sort of way. And this is happening at the climax of the movie as four or five of these crawling eyes are attacking the observatory but luckily brooks manages to get through to the un uh because he what he does at the un is part of like a special forces of like weird phenomena or whatever and so yeah he's like apparently the leader of like the x-files slash like challengers of the unknown at the fucking un which i don't think there is a a department like that no because they are very focused on diplomacy yeah (laughs) In any case, he manages to get through and uh, he's like, we need to firebomb this entire mountain and the observatory because fire will defeat cold. Yeah, yeah. These things are vulnerable to fire damage. And the UN sends one plane. But successfully firebombs and kills all of the crawling eyes. And uh, everyone seems to have survived for the most part. Um, Some people dead. Uh but not as many as you would hope for (laughs) for a horror movie. And that's the end. So let's, let's start with talking about what we liked about this movie. So I 
happened to like the score. Okay. There were moments where um, they were trying to build tension uh, during like shadowy scenes. And I thought they did a really good job with the score. I really like that the theme of the crawling eyes uh, had like radio beeps as well as theremin going in there. Definitely a um, Forbidden Planet, like early, early, early synth Mm -hmm. kind of feel to it. I think it must be the same kind of electronic produced sounds as forbidden planet yeah because i kept talking about how like Anne is kind of like a radio receiving signals from people and the reason why she gets overcome with this trance is because there's a more powerful signal and i just really like the idea of like that analogy being brought into the score sure i also really liked the alien design yeah i think the aliens look really cool um they are, you know, maybe a little cheesy because of the low budget. Like, I could see them getting, like, kind of a chuckle mm-hmm. um, just in terms of the execution. Um, but the actual design is really cool. They're big and they're gross and the, the moving eye. eye yeah, yeah it looks cool. great. Yeah, the, the eye moving around looks really cool. Yeah, what the fact that, like, you could see it start to, like, follow characters mm. really freaked me out. It does mean that the U.S. title is quite accurate, Mm -hmm. even if it's kind of a spoiler, because, like, we don't know what these monsters look like until the end of the movie. But if you're watching it in the U.S., you know that they're crawling eyes. That is fair. That is fair. But, I mean, they also edited the movie to get to the monsters faster. Mm -hmm. So they weren't... They they wanted you to know what was in the cloud, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think that um, Forrest Tucker gives a good performance as Alan... Um, like very believable he speaks his absurd dialogue with a kind of like commitment that <laughs> makes it seem like you know there's some verisimilitude here with a commitment that makes you think he would probably be a good guest star on star trek right yeah exactly i think the sequence of events and the unfolding of the plot is like very reasonable and mm-hmm. makes sense you know from step a to b um, I think Lawrence Payne as Phil Truscott is really good. Um, but I mean, I would kind of expect him to be because this is the second time he's playing this character. I don't feel like there's anyone particularly bad in the cast. Some people are just doing the work, though. They're not really setting themselves apart. For sure. Um, what did you think of Janet Monroe as Anne, the telepath? She is really good at just staring off into space. <laughs> she has a really good doe-eyed look. Sure. Um, I was very disappointed with Anne. Um, I think the reason why she's here is because of however the adaptation happened from TV yeah. to here. Um, I couldn't find a very deep synopsis of the television show, um, but I could find the titles of the episodes and it's clear that at one point after they discover that the exodes are there and they plan to move down the mountain um they set a trap because there's an episode called the trap Mm. uh which i would presume is done through Anne luring them somewhere or something so she has something more to do yeah and that's completely taken away in the film yeah, I, I think the script is riddled with problems, and I would have to assume, like you, that they are the result of condensing 
the story down, which is wild because the pacing is god awful. Um, it's I agree with the American distributors. The pacing is so slow, as if the movie is trying to do everything it can to make enough content to fill the hour of the runtime before the monsters show up Mm -hmm. so that they don't have to spend money or something, which is weird when you're thinking that it's like six hours condensed into an hour and a half, right? But like everything takes forever to Mm -hmm. happen in this movie um, with lots and lots of just extraneous little bits of dialogue and stuff um, to slow scenes down. Like each scene is purposeful, but the scenes take forever and have a lot of like characters spending 30 seconds offering everyone else in the scene a cigarette or offering to buy them a drink or whatever and then when something actually does happen they happen extremely quickly like shots of gore and violence are very blink and you miss it uh, mm-hmm. before the end of the film when the monsters show up like there's shots of bodies without heads or with like blood you know, trailing places or bodies in rucksacks or like people getting attacked by, you know, pickaxes and knives and things. But like every time something like that happens, it's like very, 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 very fast so that your brain doesn't really process it. But then everything else is like, you know, very much in that style of like, let's watch people walk down the stairs and into a room and across the room and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Uh for me, the pacing feels too leisurely. Hmm. Like it knows where it's going and it's just going to take its time getting there. Yeah. And I think the other problem is we also know where it's going. Right. Because like it's okay for a film to be predictable at the end of the day because we all know mm-hmm. what's going to happen by the end, right? Like there's going to be a resolution. If it's a romance, there's going to be a romance by the end. Like we all kind of know the pattern of stories. Right. Um, so it's not a huge deal if it's predictable, but when, when you're a horror movie, you should be not so leisurely. You should be focused on like building more tension. And there are moments that the film does do a fairly good job with tension. Like, for example, the cable car where it's like, oh, God, it's going to freeze. And it felt like they were, they were like trying to do tension. And I was like, OK, like I'll throw you a bone. And then they get up to the top and it's no problem. Well, this is the thing. So there's a bunch of moments in this movie where I felt like they were like intending for scenes to be scenes of suspense or tension. But either from a directing standpoint or an editing standpoint, the scenes fail because they just aren't shot and edited right like, yeah, there's nothing keeping you on the edge of your seat. Like, you can tell that they understand that they're supposed to, like, cut back and forth between things, but the rhythm of it is totally wrong somehow. Like, it's this yeah. very interesting thing of, like, if you've never really understood how you could get things like that wrong, like, to watch scenes like this because they don't work. It's like reading a poem by someone who, like, understands rhyming but doesn't understand meter Mm -hmm. because meter is like a subtler thing that you can't just like figure out on your own easily. It's more of something you like, if you haven't been instructed in it, it's more something that you feel right. Yeah. And so there's just like none of that understanding of editing rhythm here. So all of these scenes that are supposed to be really high tension and suspense kind of fall flat. Um, The cable car scene is a great example of that. 
And while I like the creativity of the soundtrack in employing those Forbidden Planet bleep bloops, um, <laughs> a lot of times the music doesn't sound right for what's happening. Like, it's like, mm. this is music that's clearly meant to be like, oh, this is a tense scene, but it doesn't match the kind of tension we're going for here. Um, yeah. The soundtrack often sounds like it's a very small group of instruments, more like a television show's soundtrack than what you would want from like a movie where you kind of want bigger sound. And also there are a bunch of scenes in this movie that don't have any music where it would really have helped, like that cable car sequence where, you know, some kind of like dun, 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 kind of music to like <laughs> get the tension up would be good. And there just isn't anything. Yeah. And I think the other moment that felt like it needed music is when the plane shows up yeah like we made the joke as we were watching it that oh great here's where you put in that theme from godzilla right yeah 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 but they don't really have anything it's just like hey we're here yeah get coming close for the strafe run and it's like this is supposed to be the climax and like we're supposed to be like will they get there in time what is fun is um they're like we're five minutes out uh to the location and we paused for a quick second and we were five minutes from the end of the movie and we were like, oh, okay, <laughs> so we'll have a universal ending. Right. Um, but yeah, so all of this kind of contributes to the pacing feeling too slow for the majority of the movie. So I totally agree with the American distributors who mm -hmm. wanted to like get to the monsters faster. Like I agree with the idea of waiting till the end of your movie to showcase your monsters. But when so little happens in that hour leading up, it makes it a really tough wait. Right. Um, Especially when, until you see the crawling eye, uh, the threat is a cloud. Yes. Like or, you have to do something to make that cloud feel like really terrifying like hp lovecraft oh fuck right yeah it has to be like something very mysterious and like enveloping and you have to figure out like what's scary about clouds which is like the lack of visibility and like what could be in there and i can't see where i'm going you know it has to be like some silent hill fog i mean this is what john carpenter's the fog is right yeah. like he took this inspiration of like the monsters are in the cloud and he like you know doubled down on the cloud right and that was really smart because yeah here the problem is that we clearly don't have the money to do anything cool with the cloud like we don't even really have a lot of money for like a smoke machine or something that being said okay so i guess they they have enough of a smoke machine to work for their model sets yes and their model sets are well done yes i am very impressed with their models yes they are clearly models but, you know, they put the effort in and yes, they have enough of that for the models. But like on set, there no. just isn't enough of this cloud to work. I think um, the other thing that I noticed with this condensing of the script from six hours to an hour and a half is they should have condensed the characters yeah. because there are so many characters in this movie and so many of them are redundant characters. Some are introduced just to be killed off. Um, Which is fine. That's horror movie tradition. But what's odd is that like, like I think of the brain eaters where sure, only two people of our main group die, but they are the two main characters, right? So it feels like a lot. And while, yeah, I guess there are quite a few people who die on screen in the Trollenberg terror, they don't really have any impact because like our main core group are fine. Well, what's worse is that 
a lot of the characters in the main core group don't have a point to be here. Yes. So like one of my biggest problems with this story is that it is structured like there's a big sci-fi mystery to solve, right? We arrive in Trollerberg and it's like, oh, what's happening with these mysterious accidents? And what's the deal with the cloud that doesn't move and is radioactive? And like, what's happening? Like, what's going on here? What's the mystery? Like, what happened to this guy's head? And like, how did Brett survive? And all these things, right? But the problem is, it isn't a mystery because Alan and the professor know all that there is to know before the story starts. Nobody, they don't learn anything new. Mm -hmm. All they do is kind of confirm, oh yeah, this is like that other time. And then once they've confirmed that, they're like, so here's our theory of what was going on at that other time. We think that these are aliens. We think that they're here to colonize earth and that the cloud is because they need a different atmosphere to survive and blah, 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 blah. And so the only mystery here is being created artificially um, by leaving the audience in the dark for a vast stretch of time because Alan and the professor know this, but they just keep it all to themselves for the vast majority of the movie until you get to them telling Philip, which leads me to the frustration I have with Philip. He's positioned as if he's supposed to be our secondary protagonist, but he serves no purpose ultimately other than to be someone that Alan and the professor can tell their exposition to at a key moment. Really mm -hmm. Alan and the professor are the two protagonists. And so because Philip doesn't really get to do anything otherwise, um, his like implied romantic ending with Anne really seems to come out of nowhere. Like it was clear earlier in the movie that, he, you know, she's young and cute. So he has a crush on her or whatever, but like, they go from having said maybe three words to each other the whole movie to suddenly once the aliens are dead, it's like, ah, oh, Anne, and now you and I shall go and get married or something. And you're like, what? So I completely agree with what you're saying. Yes, it's positioned as a mystery and we, we want to search out the answers. We don't get any answers. The only answer is like, oh, it's like that other time. Right. Anything else is like theory. And even then... It's all circumstantial of like, yeah, they, I guess they're aliens and uh, cloud because of atmosphere. Nothing about why are they only ripping off the heads? Why are they like wanting to kill Anne? Why are they doing anything? Yeah, why is Anne a threat to them? Right? Yeah. We, we're told Anne is a threat to them, but why? Yeah. And, and you're right that the answers we get are just the professor's theories, but it's done in a really lazy way so that, mm -hmm. you know, the movie clearly intends to be telling you like, but you can basically take this as the explanation because you're not going to get anything else, right? And it's like, why does, based on what we know of how the professor and Alan dealt with this in the Andes, it's like, how do they know or even come to the theory that this is aliens and they're here to colonize and they need to change the atmosphere and blah, 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 because they don't know what's in the cloud at all. Also, they have this idea that like the aliens kill people and then sort of reanimate them as agents to go after the clairvoyance to kill them because they're a threat to the aliens. And you can, you know, tell when someone's being mind controlled because they have the lack of coordination and everything's too hot for them because the aliens live in extreme cold and blah, blah, blah. But their account of like the first time they ran into this phenomenon in the Andes is, you know, this guy who, who had been dead for 24 hours. But from their perspective... The information they have is they arrived at this woman's house. She was dead and this other guy was dead. She had clearly been killed by someone or something through violence and he'd been dead for 24 hours. 
Yeah. They never actually observed his behavior. So how do they know these things? Right. Yeah. Um, So what I'm trying to get at is that even the movie isn't concerned with answering these loose threads. mm -hmm. Um, And to that point, the movie isn't really concerned with the purpose of any of this. Right. Um, Like I was like, okay, but why is this happening with that happening? Like, but why Anne? Uh, but why would uh, it only be the heads? Like, cool, we have these moments of like gore and, and gruesomeness and like that's really awesome. But why are the aliens doing any of this? Like, there's just, it's fine for a movie to not have an explanation. That's totally fine. Um, but when the movie positions itself as like, we're going to answer these questions, just kidding. I don't give a fuck. Right. Like, it gets frustrating. The other thing is that. Alan and the professor, because they've already run into this in the Andes, they have all the answers. Everyone else is a moron and like incapable of putting two thoughts together. Um, it's really weird to me that like Sarah knows that Anne is telepathic and knows that Anne is telepathic. But before the audience is told that Anne is telepathic, they try to play like, why did Anne decide to stop here? How does she know these things as like a mystery to the point where there's a conversation between Sarah and Anne with no one else around where Sarah's like, Oh, maybe you just like read about it in a book or something. And maybe that's why you know these things. And Anne's like, yeah, I have no idea why I know these things. And it's like, bitch, you both know that she's telepathic. Like, how are you this dumb? Yeah. Frankly, Sarah serves no role in the story other than to be a nursemaid to Anne, who has like severe 1960s Jean Grey syndrome, (laughs) where like she's telepathic and can communicate with the aliens, but it's such a mental strain that she's going to collapse and be in bed for most of the movie. And despite her telepathic connection to the aliens, which you would think would be like a major element of the story, considering that like it's kind of what kicks off the plot at the start of the movie and serves no other role in this movie other than to be a damsel in distress. Yeah. My comment is coming at a time when we have many powerful telepathic female characters, even just as recently as like 11 from stranger things. Um, so, you know, maybe I need to temper my expectations of what a movie from 1958 will allow its female characters to do with telepathic powers. But it's also just like, like you're pointing out, plot wise there's nothing for her to do exactly so like you know i'm not surprised that like she sees things and then she faints and that like we have to look after her and she's in bed half the movie that stuff's all pretty par for the course for 1958 um i don't know why telepathy gets given to women as a power it seems like they get it more often than male characters um because it's touchy-feely ben sure you know, right the woman's intuition. woman's intuition right 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 um, but yeah, like you can see this in how Jean Grey is treated before she becomes the Phoenix in the seventies. Um, but just from like a plotting level, the only things that her being telepathic accomplish is it's a reason for her and Sarah to be in Trollenberg cause she decides to like stop the car, which could just as easily be like, they came here for their vacation. That could be the reason why they're here. And then it helps us like learn things like how Drewhurst is dead and Brett went off into the um, wilderness, which like we could find out other ways as well. And then like, it's the reason why the aliens keep attacking her, but like, you know, 
you don't really need a reason for why the monsters are going after the young pretty girl in a horror movie. Um, it doesn't really like accomplish anything in the way that you'd think. There's a moment towards the end before Alan figures out that cold things might not like fire um, <laughs> before he comes to that stunning revelation where he's like, we have to protect Anne. Anne's got a telepathic connection with them. She might be like the only way to fight them. And people are like, how? And he's like, I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. And then it's like, wait, they don't like heat. Actually, though, let's just do fire. Let's just kill them with with violence. Uh, and the whole thing about Anne just totally falls by the wayside. Like, there's just such weak storytelling throughout this script that, like, in hindsight, is really easily fixed throughout. Like, one of the most frustrating examples for me, the professor is here at Trollenberg at this observatory. Why? Because he's got a station set up here to, like, point telescopes into space to observe cosmic rays. And just happens that this place that he's been set up to do that is a mountain that happens to have the same cloud and phenomena that he observed in the Andes. Yeah. Like, what a wild coincidence. Wouldn't it make more sense if it was like, ah, professor, similar to your report in the Andes, there's another one of those clouds. We will send you there to investigate. And then he contacts Alan to be like, hey, it's another one of those things. Like, rather than Alan just happening to be on vacation and he gets like the message from the professor being like, hey, I want you to take a look at this that I've run into while I happen to be here investigating cosmic rays. Yeah, everything's just very happenstance. Um, and then like, wouldn't it be stronger storytelling if instead of, you know, the professor and Alan already knowing what's going on and being like oh yeah we've encountered this all before in the andes we think they're aliens blah 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 if like they didn't know what was going on and he and alan had to you know figure it out and piece it together from the clues like you know there was this thing in the andes but we have no idea what it was or what happened it was all a big mystery now we have a chance to find out like okay what do we know let's put the pieces together and it's like how can we possibly find out who they are or what they're here for when they're just a big cloud oh we have a telepath here who can make contact with them. And then like Anne finds out that they're aliens and they're here to conquer earth because she can like telepathically communicate with them. And that's how we learn things and figure things out. And then at the end, like what if she was, you know, the key to how they are defeated because they didn't expect humans to be able to be like telepathic. And so that was their like weak spot because they didn't guard against it instead of just, you know, we bombed them with fire bombs, which is like, Pretty, pretty pathetic, guys. Like You had a quote from a reviewer uh, that said this was okay if predictable. It's definitely predictable. I, I guess I would agree that it's okay because there are neat parts to it, uh, but I would almost prefer a cut-down version of this to be on the Twilight Zone or something. I think it's very disappointing um, because there's enough good in here that I can see like a better version of this movie yeah. in my mind's eye. I do see why kids of the fifties found the monster memorable enough for it to like show up in Stephen King novels and shit like that. It's a really good monster and also directly threatens children. Sure. <laughs> my like comes closer to threatening a child than it does to threatening Anne. Sure. Um, <laughs> My question here is, is this strong enough to be considered horror or is this just like a sci-fi mystery thriller with an action climax? Well, there's another quote that you mentioned that was about uh, this film having nothing to enhance or advance science fiction. Right. And 
to me, that's because it's not concerned with science fiction. If it was, it would have had more to say about who these aliens are, what these aliens are, uh, tying up some of these loose threads, um, even to an extent answering some of these mysterious questions. Right. Um, it's the only way that science fiction is the fact that these monsters happen to be aliens. Otherwise, I believe I would consider this movie like a monster movie, obviously. Mm, yeah. Um, you would have a s- sense of like supernatural elements because of the telepathic yeah, this could be like a Lovecraft thing where the monsters are like, you know, entities from Earth's deep past or whatever, right? Like, like wouldn't it be cool if um, the dead people only had their eyes taken? Right. And like, instead of uh, like, yes, there are these big bulbous like brains with a single eye, but there's, they're actually just made up of like giant like little eyes into <laughs> their big eye. Sure. Um. So I would say that this is a horror movie because that's what it's going for. It's what it's trying to do. And the scenes where like Brett's trying to kill Anne and stuff do have a very like horror movie vibe. They just are over and done with too fast. And we spend most of our time on things like what everyone's drink orders were. To be fair, I do want to try Campari. (laughs) Okay, so we're just saying it's bad horror. I, yes, that is what I am suggesting. So if it's horror, I guess then the question is, uh, where do we rank it? Right. What were you thinking? Um, so I was kind of looking like middle of the list. The you know, movie, the list is really long. What's the middle? Uh, well, we're up to just over 230 films. So I guess the middle of the list is like... 115? Yeah, around there. Um, I think that this is bad, but I do think that like... It pulls off enough things well that it's better than like Drek. Uh, so Drek, Drek, like real schlock, like real okay. pieces of shit. I was like, I, we didn't watch a movie called Drek. Mm. Like Drek sounds like it could be a movie. It sounds like Shrek's long lost cousin. <laughs> sure. So my ceiling is Strangler of the Swamp at one sixteen. Um, I think this could go above Beast with Five Fingers simply because Beast with Five Fingers manages to undercut itself so much with the ending. Looking down from there, my floor is number 138, Ghost of Frankenstein. This movie has predictable beats, but like has a really cool monster that you didn't expect coming if you were in the UK. Whereas everything about Ghost of Frankenstein is basically just a remix of scenes from previous Frankenstein movies, and it's very boring. Um, So that's my range, 117 to 138. Okay. When I started to look along the list, um, there were two movies that I knew I immediately needed to compare this to. First was Blood of the Vampire, Jimmy Singster's last non-Hammer movie. Um, that is currently ranked at number 71. It unfortunately is also a little too leisurely paced and on the boring side. So I felt like it was comparable to the Trollenberg Terror. Uh, I feel like Blood of the Vampire had a bit more of a, um, I'll say a technical challenge with trying to do dark spooky with color. So that's that's just something to think about. 
The other movie I really wanted to compare it to was The Abominable Snowman. Fair. Currently ranked at number 67. Also um, Forrest Tucker up in the mountains. Yes. And obviously The Abominable Snowman is much, much better of a higher caliber in all aspects of horror and movie making. Um, so I knew it was not going to go above 67. But I had a really hard time trying to figure out where to rank this. I will say down by your area, a movie that stands out to me is Night Monster at 102. That has the frogs that suddenly stop and start. Right. Yes, yes. And I feel like on a technical level, even with like the models and things, the Trollenberg Terror is probably better than that. And then you hit the houses of Dracula and Frankenstein. So it's a, it's a really hard challenge. So I'm, I honestly have gotten a little lost. The midpoint between Blood of the Vampire at 71 and Ghost of Frankenstein is number 93. Jujin Yukio Toko is what's at 93. You know, other stuff around there is Night of the Blood Beast and the amazing Mr. X. Um, okay, here's the thing. Uh, at 91 is the thing that couldn't die, which also has like a telepathic element to it. And like they dig the the box out. That manages to have way too many characters. Mm -hmm. But also they all kind of serve a point to something. Like the pace doesn't feel like it lags because of it. It in fact feels like a complex web because of all those characters. Um, yes, it's goofy in the sense of the uh, head in the chest and put him on his body. I guess it's fine. Um, but it feels strangely comparable. But right above the thing that can die is Quatermass 2. I think that's much better than this. Yeah, I think so too. Can we just put it above Beast with Five Fingers and below Strangler of the Swamp? Because when you look above Strangler of the Swamp, you have stuff like Invisible Ghost, White Zombie, Hands of Orlac, um, all of which have their sort of problems, but I think are all stronger horror movies than yeah. this. I think the, the horror in this is kind of weak thanks to that editing and pacing trouble. Um, so I kind of just want to put it there. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I think so. Um, because you're right, the this movie... While I think I'm getting like swept away with the creature design. Yeah. But you just like keep thinking of like when it shows up and you're just like, oh shit. But that's only the last 20 minutes of the movie. Absolutely. And you even don't really get that good of a look at it. So yeah, I, yeah, let's do that. Okay. So entering the list at the new number 117, which is very close to just the direct midpoint of the list is the Trollenberg Terror a.k.a. The Crawling Eye, from 1958, directed by Quentin Lawrence. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. 
Tell your friends about the show online, over social media, or just in person. If you have the means, we would really appreciate your financial support at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and patrons of all levels get to take part in our monthly polls to determine our horror-adjacent bonus episode for that month. I feel like we're headed towards like a pretty clear um winner in that poll. Yeah, Sarah? Yeah, it's looking like it'll probably be Scooby Doo on Zombie Island, but you never know. You don't wanna you don't wanna leave Sherlock Holmes Hound of the Baskervilles out. Sure. If it's Scooby Doo, it's gonna be an interesting episode because I think you and I have like vastly opposed views on that movie. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to take part in that poll, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we're watching a little known little indie horror movie. Um, it's been released a couple of different times under a couple of different titles, but the original title for its original release is my favorite of its titles. It's my world dies screaming. Oh, Wow. That is quite the title to live up to. Yes. Uh, So we'll see if it manages it next week. We will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.